Before we uh, open God's Word, uh, there is uh, one further announcement to, to make. Uh, we want to ask you to please put into your calendars uh, our next Race and Grace conversation. That's going to be held on March the 4th at 6 o'clock at uh, Beulah Tabernacle. Uh, just want a, a couple of words. Is it 5th? Yes, thank you. March the 5th at 6 o'clock. A couple of thoughts on this, uh, brothers and sisters. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the future ongoing unity and deepening of love of our fellowship as Risen Hope Church depends, at least in some measure, upon these conversations. We, we need these conversations. These conversations are intended to build relationships, to deepen uh, love within the body of Christ. We really believe that the diversity we now enjoy can be threatened if we don't talk about certain things together, if we don't understand each other well. We believe we're seeing the fruit of these conversations. Uh, dozens have begun to do hospitality with each other. Diverse people have become good friends opening their homes and their hearts to each other, people that are very different from them, but they are finding out in the end are not really that different after all. They're growing to love and to trust each other. One of the fruits of these conversations has been that we've begun to realize that though we might have different perspectives, we don't have to be polarized. We don't have to be standing firm on divisive opposite ends of the various issues that we may disagree on. We can actually learn from each other. And we can actually be affected by each other. People think differently and hearing their thoughts has a way of helping us to think differently and helping us to, to be more balanced and nuanced and healthy in our perspectives. For example, these conversations can, and they have helped some of us to see that if you voted for Donald Trump, it does not necessarily mean you are a racist. And if you voted for Hillary Clinton, it does not necessarily mean that you don't like unborn babies. There are different reasons why people vote, and we need to understand them. We need to hear them. These kind of conversations have helped us to realize that you can have a sign on your front yard that says, I support the police. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't care about black lives. But you can have a sign, another sign, on that same front yard that says, hold them accountable. So that we make sure the police, for all of the noble work they do, are held accountable for the work they do. We can have both signs on the front yard. There's a novel idea, but really what it is is simply an expression of balance and nuance that flows out of understanding, that flows out of conversations. We could go on and on with examples of that, but the point is, friends, that we have differences of perspective that are not meant to polarize us and divide us but are meant to inform and influence us. 
so that we can come to a place of wisdom. We can come to a place of discernment and we can deepen, deepen our love and our affection and our trust for each other. So will you please consider making these conversations a regular part of your life and of your schedule? Every four to six weeks we have one of these We want to keep them going. And it's not just going to be regarding, let's say, black and white issues. We are a congregation of 15 to 20 different ethnicities. We're going to want to be hearing from everyone and affected by everyone as we we go on and proceed together. So please mark that down, March the 5th, 6 o'clock, Beulah Tabernacle. Thank you uh, for uh, considering that. Now, none of that is to be deducted from my preaching time. (laughs) Now, my 30 minutes begins right now, and then whatever's left over for Q&A, we will pursue. Let's do a quick summary of where we've been in Ecclesiastes to this point. The, The overall theme of the book, I've summarized like this, even if In the quest for significance, even if in the quest for significance, we could try everything under heaven that there is to try, we would never find our meaning here. For our maker is our meaning. Ecclesiastes is the journal of a man who tried it all and found that there was nothing under the sun that would satisfy his soul. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is a chasing after the wind. And we have been tracking with Solomon in his journal. And we've been reminded uh, that there is vanity uh, in knowledge and and in seeking answers to the why questions of life. We called that the trouble with whining. We've learned that there is vanity in pleasure, in searching for the eternal buzz. We have learned that there is vanity in wealth, what we called shark tank madness. We have learned that there is even vanity in under-the-sun religion and righteous causes, what we called religioso rigamortis. A rigor mortis of the soul that sets in when we try to do religion and right things without a relationship with God. And now, today, under the title, What Mirrors Won't Tell, we will explore the vanity of youth and health, two of the most popular vain idols of our world today. Let me just pause briefly and say two weeks from now, Uh, Next week, Alex is going to be preaching, bringing an important message on another topic. And then when we come back, when I come back uh, to preach in two weeks, we're going to turn the corner in this series and start to really connect to the point of the book. The point of the book is not vanity of vanities. The point of the book is there is God, and so there is meaning. And in two weeks, we're going to start looking at that and, and realizing that the reality of God is not some kind of leap of faith into the darkness of stupidity or superstition, but it is an expression of confidence based upon the evidence that is before us. It is not a leap of faith that is without evidence. It is a surrender to the evidence 
that is within our own hearts and in the world that God made. Cannot wait to get to that in two weeks. But before then, let's talk about what mirrors won't tell. Maybe you've heard the uh, story from ancient uh, Greek mythology about Narcissus. He was a young man who was full of himself, saw himself as the most beautiful and handsome thing going. And because of the vanity that Narcissus had, uh, he resisted and repelled all affection and love from all the young ladies that were around, was so full of himself that finally in the mythology, the gods got a little upset with him and they sentenced him uh, to a rather unusual, eventually deadly punishment. They placed in the middle of a wood a pool, a fountain. And the water in that fountain was as clear as silver. There was no pollution in it. There was no dirt in it, no leaf, no grass. Nothing that would, that would in any way hinder the reflection coming from it. And one day Narcissus is out hunting and he gets tired and he finds this fountain and he stoops down to drink from the fountain and he sees his own image in the fountain and was entranced by the beauty of what he saw, not realizing it was his own image, and he fell in love with himself. And he kept gazing and staring at this reflection. And in his love, he began to draw near to it and wanted to kiss it. But when his lips touched the water, the water rippled and the reflection went away. And he went out to embrace it. And when his hands touched the water, the water rippled and the reflection went away. It is a picture of unrequited love. It's loving that which will not love in return. But it is also a picture of vanity and futility. And as the story goes... He became so in love with himself that he could never pull himself away. And there he, his life faded out and he died right there by the pool. And later on, it is said, a fair flower emerged from where he died. That is where the term narcissism has come from. Many of us who live in America, whatever our nationality or ethnicity, have fallen in love with ourselves, with external beauty and youthfulness. I think I could make a case that the mirror should be our national symbol. We love and are consumed with looking good and staying young, and our efforts to look good and stay young are extreme and expensive. From Botox to liposuction to beauty aids, tanning salons, clothes, jewelry, bling, and then repeat all the above over and over and over again. But the pursuit of and the enjoyment of unending youth and beauty is Futility, age and aging are universal. They creep in upon all of us at exactly the same rate with no exceptions. You can dress it up, you can, you can tuck it up, you can Botox it, you can exercise it, you can diet it, you can dye it, you can paint it. 
And you can do all of that until you look in the mirror and you look like you are 20 years younger. But what mirrors won't tell is that inside you're still the same age. You see, it's just not true. Busting a couple of bubbles here. You are not as as old as you look and you are not as old as you feel. You are as old as you are. That's the truth. You are as old as you are, and you will not live to be any older than what God has decided. That's why in chapter 3, one of the most famous poems of all time, there is a time to be born, and there is a time to die. You will die, not a moment sooner, You will live not a moment longer than the number of years and months and days and hours and minutes and seconds that have been appointed to you by God. Mirrors won't tell you any of that. Mirrors will just tell you that you may look good on the outside. They won't tell you the truth. here's Here's the point of the message Youth and health are vanity, and if you trust in them for your meaning and joy, you are chasing the wind. Youth and health are vanity, and if you trust in them for your meaning and joy, you are chasing the wind. Way back when I first started ministry, I had a part-time job on the side. I was a valet of cars at a local hospital. So about four hours a day, I would park cars during the middle of the day. And because the area we lived in was surrounded by retirement villages, many of the patients that came in were senior citizens. They either dropped their car off because they were visiting their spouse or they were coming in themselves. And it must have been hundreds of times, hundreds of times, when I heard this young man, I was young then, then young man, If you don't have your health, you don't have anything. If you don't have your health, you don't have anything. And you could read the sadness and the depression on their face. If you don't have your health, you don't have anything. It was the confession of hundreds of people who had put all of their happiness eggs into the basket of youth and health only to discover how fleeting it all was. The question is, do you have a purpose in your life, a meaning to your life that will transcend age and outlast the aging and dying process? Do you have a meaning in your life that goes above health and youth, that lasts longer than life itself? If you do not, then eventually you will say, vanity of vanities, it all was vanity. It is meaningless. There must be something more. Let's look at the text in front of us. The text just read in Ecclesiastes 11 and 12 paints for us, speaks first of all of the vanity of youth and then paints for us a picture of old age. Whenever I... Whenever I think of old age, I do think of a, of a 104-year-old woman that I read about once uh, who was being interviewed by reporters, and she was asked, what's the best thing about being 104? 
And seeing at least this little bit of a silver lining to the cloud of her old age, she said, there's no peer pressure. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Looking on the bright side of things. But I'm sure that was in her best moments. Because the aging process is not a whole lot of fun. I know from experience. I I was away a few weeks ago in Kentucky, and Gaylene sent me a, a romantic love limerick in response to one that I had sent. I've gotten her permission to quote this for you. Here's what Galen wrote to me. There once was a man named Tim whose eyes were increasingly dim. But from his head to his toes, his handsomeness grows without even using the gym. (laughs) Now, (laughs) that's right, that's right. There are layers to that, folks. Uh, the wise, the wise crack about the gym was totally unnecessary. <laughs> the comment about handsomeness reflects the fact that her eyes are aging. The comment about my eyes increasingly dim, absolutely true. My hearing diminishing with each passing year increasingly true. The font size for the notes I have in front of me right now? 26. Some of you halfway back could read it from where you are. I need it. I used to have vision. I could read this on the back wall 30 years ago. I squint now to see it. Because aging happens. It happens. Solomon gives a description of it in verses 1 through 7 of Ecclesiastes 12. He he is describing in very symbolic language the aging process and the effects of it on on us physically and psychologically. And in verse 2 he says, he describes when everything goes dark and it never stops being either cloudy or rainy. Describing the psychological, emotional state of old age where it just darkness sets in and it seems like it never gets sunny. In verse 3, he describes the day when the keepers of the house tremble, may well referring to the, to the arms growing weak and unable to lift without trembling. In verse 3, he talks about when the strong men are bent probably referring to the legs, no longer straight, no longer strong. In verse 3, again, he, he speaks of the grinders ceasing because they are few. What do you think that's referring to? Your teeth. In verse 3, those who look through the windows are dim, the dimming of the eyes and of sight. In verse 4, the doors on the street are shut either referring to the loss of hearing, perhaps, or just the shutting up and shutting down of normal bodily functions. Verse 4, when the sound of the grinding is low, maybe comes back to the teeth in trouble eating. Verse 4, when one rises at the sound of a bird, if you're anywhere, if you're my age or above, you know what it's like to sleep lightly so that the slightest sound wakes you up. All the daughters of song, verse 4, are brought low, The older people get, very often the less they sing. 
In verse 5, they're afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. Fears take over. Verse 5, the almond tree blossoms. The blossom of an almond is grayish white. Is referring to white hair here. The grasshopper drags itself along. This is the slowing and the struggling of walking. Verse 5, desire fails. The diminishment of appetite for food and and physical intimacy and pleasure. Verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken. The pitcher is shattered at the fountain. The wheel is broken at the cistern. This may refer to bodily organs. It may just refer to the fact that the older you get, everything just starts breaking down. And then in verse 7, it's really humbling. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. As I read that this week, it just suddenly hit me. Apart from God, apart from life in Christ and the promise of everlasting life, if there is no God to raise the dead, then your destiny and mine is to return to dust. That's your end. That's it. It's just going to disintegrate into dust. And there will be no more. If there is no God, if there is no life beyond. Solomon is describing vanity. The vanity of youth. The vanity of health. Others have expressed it as well. One contemporary description of this goes like this. You know you've reached old age when everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. When it takes a couple of tries to get over a speed bump. When it takes longer to rest than it did to get tired. When it takes twice as long to look half as good. When the clothes you put away until they might come back in style have come back in style. When the little gray-haired lady you help across the street is your wife. When you sink your teeth into a steak and they stay there. When you sit in a rocking chair and can't get it going, when your idea of weightlifting is standing up, and when you and your teeth don't sleep together. we, We laugh about it because it's so hard to face seriously. Because there is a reality going on that We'd almost rather be in denial of, but Solomon's not letting us be in denial. He's saying, you're going to have to face this sooner or later. You're going to have to come to grips with it. He has a twofold point. Point number one is it happens to everybody. Look at verse 8 of chapter 11. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many Verse 1 of chapter 12, we will say of certain times in our later years, we have no pleasure in them. Old age happens. It happens to all of us. It will happen to you. It will happen to me. The only way you escape Ecclesiastes 12 is if you die before you're old or if Jesus comes back. But it's that real and that serious. And it stops for no one. In chapter 8, 
the writer says, no one has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. It, it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. Galen and I have been dabbling in an exercise routine called aging backwards. Who are we kidding? <laughs> I, I guess, you know, a certain amount of exercise and the stopping of bad habits, unwise, unhealthy habits might, might slow down the aging forwards a bit, but God's clock for your life and mine just keeps right on ticking. Just keeps right on ticking. And it's coming fast. Solomon says here in chapter 11, youth and the dawn of life are vanity. They're a mere breath. They're a mist. They're a vapor. Remember your creator in your youth. Why? Why? Why in your youth? Because it goes quick. You don't want to waste your life. Don't wait. Don't delay. The brevity of life, folks, and I know this is... This is serious stuff, but life is serious. The brevity of life is a major theme of the Bible. First Chronicles 29, our days are like a shadow. Psalm 90, we are like a dream. The years of our life are 70, maybe by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and they fly away. Psalm 144, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. James 4, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. It's life. Why Why the pessimism, Tim? Why the pessimism, Solomon? Because it is better to think realistically about these things than to live in denial. It is better to take them Seriously, can, can I give you these two applications? Number one, let us choose to live forever. Let us choose to live forever. In the light of what we hear in this text, in the light of what we've heard about aging and dying, let's choose to live forever. You say, Tim, how? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. Let us choose to repent of our unbelief. Let us choose to repent of our sins. Let us choose to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ whom the Father sent into the world to die for our sins, to be raised from the dead, to lead us into immortality. Let us choose to trust in Christ and we will live forever. You may still die, but you'll go on living. And we're not talking about just some kind of spiritual, ethereal existence. Your body that may turn to dust will be put back together. And it will be put back together in immortality. It will be imperishable, incorruptible, never dying soul, never dying body. In the presence of God as Alex shared with us over communion today. 
We'll be in the presence of God and in the marriage supper of the Lamb and we'll eat and we'll drink and we'll fellowship and we'll laugh and we'll live and we'll love forever and ever. This is the Christian faith. This is the Christian message. This is where it's all heading here, folks. Everything this side of death is vanity. Everything under the sun is vanity. But if we look above the sun, we see a God who loves us And we see His Son who died for us, who was buried, who was raised, who lives, who says to us, come to Me, and I will give you everlasting life. Let's choose to live forever. Let's choose to live forever. Don't let the discouragement of the mortality and the meaninglessness of life under the sun blind you to the promise of God. Don't leave here this morning. Don't leave here this morning without turning in faith to Christ and knowing that there is now, to borrow from our own name, there is now a risen hope in your spirit, in your soul, as you anticipate eternity in the presence of God. Let let us choose to live forever. And second, with this I close, Let us learn to number our days. Let us learn to number our days. Oh, my friends, unless you learn the frailty and futility of your life, unless you learn that age, aging, and dying are coming, you will never learn the meaning of life. You cannot understand what it's about until you know how short it is. You will not take it seriously until you think about how short it is. The scriptures tell us over and over again to number our days. Right in Ecclesiastes 7, the author says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. You know what he's saying? It's better to go to a funeral than to a party. Because at the funeral, you'll stop, you'll think, you'll reflect, you'll realize someday that's me. And the meaning of life and what it's all about will start to matter to you. At the party, you forget it. In the funeral, you think about it. And so, in Psalm 90, our years are soon gone and then fly away. So Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Psalm 39, O Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days. Show me how fleeting I am. Show me how fleeting I am. What a prayer. Lord, show me how fleeting my life is, how quickly it comes and goes. First time I ever taught on Ecclesiastes, I was 28 years old. I'm 58 years old now. I remember saying the first time I taught on this that life goes by quickly and it's fleeting and This young 28-year-old thinking I knew what I was talking about. Well, it's 30 years later, folks. 
And it's gone fast. It's gone fast. It's gone fast. I'm way beyond middle-aged. It's good to think about. Not too many more years, if that, before I stand before my maker. Lord, teach me to number my days that I may give my heart to wisdom, to wisdom. Back in the mid-90s, I read a book by J.I. Packer called A Quest for Godliness. It was a book about the Puritans of a bygone era back in the 1600s. I hope you realize that there were bad Puritans and there were good ones. We like the good ones. In his book, he's, he's telling us why there's value in learning about the Puritans. And there was this section that I read in this book, what, 20-something years ago now, that affected me, left a permanent, indelible mark on me. Let me read it to you. The Puritans teach us to see and feel the transitoriness of this life, to think of it with all its richness as essentially the gymnasium and dressing room where we are prepared for heaven, and to regard readiness to die as the first step in learning to live. Ponder that. Here again is a historic Christian emphasis with which we have largely lost touch. The Puritans experienced systematic persecution for their faith. What we today think of as the comforts of home were unknown to them. Their medicine and surgery were rudimentary. They had no aspirin, tranquilizers, sleeping tablets, or antidepressant pills, just as they had no social security or insurance. In a world in which more than half the adult population died young and more than half the children born died in infancy, disease, distress, discomfort, pain, and death were their constant companions. They would have been lost had they not kept their eyes on heaven and known themselves as pilgrims traveling home to the celestial city. Dr. Johnson is credited with the remark that when a man knows he's going to be hanged in two weeks, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. And in the same way, the Puritans' awareness that in the midst of life, we are in death, just one step from eternity, gave them a deep seriousness, calm yet passionate, with regard to the business of living, that Christians in today's opulent, mollycoddled, earthbound Western world rarely manage to match. Few of us, I think, live daily on the edge of eternity in the conscious way that the Puritans did, and we lose out as a result. For the extraordinary vivacity with which the Puritans lived stemmed directly, I believe, from the unflinching, matter-of-fact realism with which they prepared themselves for death, so as always to be found as it were, packed up and ready to go. Reckoning with death brought appreciation of each day's continued life and the knowledge that God would eventually decide without consulting them when their work on earth was done, brought energy for the work itself while they were still being given time to get on with it. Packed up and ready to go. What a great way to think about life. Not morbidly, 
We're going to see in a couple of weeks that on the journey toward heaven, we can stop and enjoy the pleasures of life because God is good and God is kind. But we need to be packed up and ready to go. We need to live, as it were, on the edge of eternity. It's time to get serious. Young people here this morning, don't waste your youth. College age, don't waste your youth. People, don't waste your life. Life is short. Time is precious. There, are, there is a God to know. There is a God to love. There is a God to enjoy. There is work to do. There is a kingdom to advance. There is a church to build. There are more churches to plant. There is much to do. Don't waste your life. Live on the edge of eternity. Live with eternity in view. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Live on the edge of eternity. Live with eternity in view. Living, live knowing that your next breath could possibly be breathed in the presence of God. And it will not make you morbid. It will give you a faith and an energy and a fire and a flame for life. To love your family, to love your children, to love your church, to love your neighborhood, to love your community, to love your world with energy. Because you know, I've only got a short time. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. These are the lessons Solomon would have for us. May God give us grace to learn them. Life is short, but it's glorious. Let's live it well. Let's live it faithfully. Let's live it fervently. Let's live it on fire for our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, oh, that you would write these truths upon our hearts. Take this truth, Lord, where only you can take it into the deep places of our souls that we might be changed, forever changed by them. In Jesus' name, amen. What does the pursuit of beauty, physical beauty with an eternal God-centered perspective look like? Wow, that's, that's really good. Um, let me, let me pause and just say uh, that I know there have been a bunch of questions that have been sent, and we really haven't been able on Sundays or even on Facebook as we had hoped to, to, to get to all the questions. Make sure you ask us personally. If we don't get to your question, uh, just ask us, because we really are anxious to interact with the questions. This, this question here, boy, there, there are... Um, there, there are layers to this. Um, the pursuit of personal beauty I, I, in a God-centered way, in a God-honoring way, I think begins with a recognition that God is the one who made us, um, that we are his creation. And, and the beauty that we do have, and we all have beauty, um, is a reflection of his image in our lives. So a God-centered view of beauty is a recognition that whatever beauty I have reflects God. And he is infinitely more beautiful, but here's a little glimpse of his, 
of his beauty. And then a God-centered view of beauty and the pursuit of it, I think it has to go down into the motive question. Why are you pursuing beauty? Uh, are you pursuing it so that others will think you're beautiful? Are you, are you pursuing it so that you can impress others? Are you, are you pursuing it so that... Um, uh, you can go to, there's all kinds of impurity issues that, that kind of get to modesty questions and things like that. Are, are you dressing immodestly, living immodestly in such a way that you're calling attention to your beauty in a way that is not helpful to others? There's, that's not God-centered, that's self-centered. So it's, it's a question of motivation. Do, do you want to accent accentuate the beauty that God has given to you in such a way that it doesn't really call attention to you so much as it calls attention to your heavenly father, to your God. I'm not sure. There are all kinds of fine lines in there. Um, so I'm not going to pretend to be able to define it absolutely, but hopefully that helps a little bit. The motive, doing it for the glory of God rather than the glory of self, um, and recognizing the source the source is God, and may it then be to his glory, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Second question is closely related to that. Is it wrong to color my hair, wear makeup, take vitamins, or exercise? Shouldn't we look attractive for our spouse or others uh, in this world we live in? I'm assuming this is a woman asking this question. Because if it's a guy, we need to talk. All right. um, no, but it's, it's not wrong. But again, the motive matters. The scriptures in, in 1 Timothy 1 and in 1 Peter 3 warn women from overly showy forms of dress. Uh, and... You know, immodesty in Scripture actually takes two forms. I'll just call it sexual immodesty, where you call attention to your body in a way that's, that's um, tempting for others. But there's also social immodesty in Scripture, where you flaunt your wealth or your prosperity through your jewelry, through the things that you own and wear and drive and all the rest. We are forbidden to do both. And so... We need, to, we need to make sure the motive is right as we're coloring. There's nothing wrong with coloring your hair, wearing makeup, wearing jewelry, and all the rest. Why you do it matters. That you do it for the glory of God matters. That you do it if you're married for the joy of your spouse, that matters. That's good. That's worthy. That's love. Read the Song of Solomon and you'll get that message pretty clear. Uh, so nothing wrong so long as your heart's in the right place. And it's not extravagant or immodest, either sexually or socially. Uh, now, I'm not going to define those lines for you. That's between you and God, but wrestle it out with him. So, yeah. One last question that we can take here. <clears throat> what does retirement look like for a disciple of Christ? Wow. So you look into aging. Man, You've got 30 seconds. 30 seconds, okay. <laughs> John Piper would say, you don't want to spend your retirement collecting seashells and sitting in a rocking chair. 
You want to go out in a blaze of faithfulness. So keep on serving. If you can retire, and in retiring, you can actually get, you have enough income so that you're not dependent on work anymore, don't start traveling the Don't start traveling the world as your highest pursuit. Go ahead, enjoy the world, but don't make it your highest pursuit. Figure out the fact that God has made it possible for you to spend the last years of your life, all expenses paid through retirement, to serve Him with all of your heart. Go out with energy. Go out with joy. Don't just peter out in your rocking chair. Live it out in fullness for the glory of God.